Welcome to UFO Think Tank Radio with your host, Alejandro Rojas. Hola, senores y senoritas. For those who don't know any Spanish, that is people, boys and girls, men and women. And honestly, that's about the extent of Spanish I know myself. I am so happy to be speaking with you because this portion of the show last week got screwed up. Some of you who listen live heard this because there is like this microphone problem and it made this weird robotic sound and um I didn't notice that till the live show went up and then I I was able to listen and hear this crazy noise so I reposted uh just my interview with Vince so many of you just got to hear that interview which was a good interview Vince was a really interesting guy I I wish them well for their TV show so that was a lot of fun to be talking with him however you all missed the UFO news because I had a full half hour of news. There was a lot of news to talk about. The worst part was I was being so funny. Oh, my gosh. Was I cracking myself up? I was so excited. I was like, I am so funny in this show that I'm going to be able to get a girlfriend and a job out of this. And then, of course, it doesn't air. And here I am. All by myself. But I'm being funny now, right? I hope. And maybe so um, this will help me gain those things. Either way, well, that is for the future to tell. But there was also, besides my, my humor and wit, a lot of really good UFO news that you all got to miss. And so I decided I've got to do a UFO show today. And who better to talk UFO news than with Lee Spiegel? Because, of course, he is uh, full-time looking at UFO news, and it's his job to write about the latest and the greatest for the Huffington Post, one of the largest UFO news sites on the planet Earth. And that is the case. They're actually number six um, for people reading news, uh, at least for English-speaking countries. Well, that might be just for the United States, but it's probably all English-speaking countries. Because other countries like our stuff. We got good stuff. Not that we don't like other countries' stuff. The U.K. often and some of their larger papers um, have, uh, such as The Sun writes a lot about UFOs. And, uh, of course, many of you who go read those UFO stories see that they also have on The Sun a lot of scantily clad women, some of them that are only wearing bikinis, and that's a feature thing that they do. They cover bikini girls, um, because that's, of course, a very, very popular topic besides UFOs. So uh, there are other English-speaking news uh, outlets out there, but the Huffington Post is very popular, and that's why we'll be talking to Lee Spiegel today to talk about all the UFO news. I'm gonna, I'll am have a couple stories here that we'll go over that Lee and I won't be covering, but uh, Lee and I are going to talk in depth about a lot of these stories. And the cool thing is, all of these big stories that come out, Lee gets to interview these people. Uh, and so, and of course, he can't put his whole interview in the story. So today, Lee will be telling us some of the behind the scenes, some of the secret stuff, some of the incredible stuff that he 
isn't able to get into a story. So there really are some things that uh, you haven't read about or heard about that Lee and I will be speaking um, of today that are very intriguing and interesting, and you're going to love it. I know it. So that's really cool. I'm excited for today's show, and you should be too. And if you're not, what's your problem? This is good stuff. All right. So uh, first thing I want to tell you about, though, is a great video that I posted today. I think it's great because, well, about a month and a half ago, actually about two months ago, we had uh, Robert Powell on the show. Some of you might have uh, remembered that. He is the the director of research for MUFON. Uh, Also, the reason we had him on is because he wrote this book uh, along with others called UFOs and Government uh, with some really interesting stuff. So I'm actually writing a little Huffington Post piece on that, and that will be up in the next couple of days. But what I did was uh, record a short, well, fairly short, short compared to this show, uh, 20-minute video interview where we Skype together, Robert and I, and I posted that on the MUFON uh, YouTube site, which if you go to YouTube, you can look for MUFON HQ or just look for UFOs and government, something like that. You'll find it. Or, of course, you could go to my Facebook or the Twitter because many of you uh, follow me on those venues, and uh, you'll see the links there. But it was a cool interview uh, where we talked about his book, and if you don't remember, the book is really groundbreaking. I think it's incredible because, as they say, it's from the government's perspective. So, And uh, how do they get the government's perspective? Well, they refer to government documents. They have over a 1,000 official government documents that they refer to and sources uh, with this uh, book that they've written. It took them four and a half years visiting archives. Uh, National Archives, University Archives to put this together. It's chock full of official government documents. Um, And then some of the writers that contributed to this book have actually been researching this stuff for decades. So uh, this is, you know, a compilation of it, a lot of incredible data. Somebody wrote, uh, Jamal Clark wrote, on the book that it's going to be the book that everybody refers to when they write about UFOs from here on out. And I think that is the case because uh, thank goodness these guys did all of this hard work to really uh, put together a concentration of all of uh, the government documents here. So, And it gives you an interesting insight, and mostly the insight lets you uh, have a glimpse that, yes, the government did take this very, very seriously up until the very end. And as we know, there are lots of military witnesses, some of whom have been on this show, that still take this stuff very seriously. And the sightings that they had while they were in the military, they concluded, and others with them, that whatever uh, it was that they observed was an advanced technology beyond our own capabilities here on the planet Earth. And some of them have gone so far as to say that perhaps they were extraterrestrial. Um, Of course, this book also includes international organizations uh, that have UFO research groups, uh, uh, official groups, such as uh, we talked to the director of or the PR guy for the CEFAA, thanks to Leslie Kane, which is uh, associated with their FAA equivalent uh, there in Chile. Peru has one associated, so does Argentina, to their Air Force. 
Uh, and then France in particular, we, we talk a little bit about France, uh, Robert and I in the video, because they have Japan, which is an organization that is actually part of their NASA sort of equivalent there. So uh, they look at things from a scientific point of view, which in particular gets Robert excited because he is scientific oriented himself. In fact, uh, that's most of what his career was in, which he talks about in the video. So the video is a lot of fun. The book is magnificent, and I would certainly recommend it to all of you. In fact, you know, some of uh, you'll probably see it around. So some of you, I know if you read UFO Chronicles, Frank Warren has a, an image of the book up there, and I know Billy Cox wrote about it recently. So, yeah, some of the, the cool dudes out there in the UFO field have been uh, – giving some attention to the book because it's, it's just an exciting thing that these guys have put together. So, yeah, isn't that nice? UFO news. There is some news out there because you know I am very dedicated and devoted to you all, my listeners. You are very, very important to me. In fact, uh, you know, uh, I do my best to make sure that you're up to date and informed. And I want to let you in on some stories before I bring Lee on that uh, Lee and I are not discussing to make sure that you have all the info at your fingertips because it's very important, very important. And uh, the first one is a pretty interesting video out of Turkey. And this was printed in the, uh, well, posted on the International Business Times. Uh, International Business Times we talk about quite often lately because they post a lot of UFO stories and they treat them very seriously, including this one, which is a video from Turkey of what they're calling a bullet-shaped UFO. And really it looks like kind of a stubby rocket cruising through the sky at a great speed with uh, leaving a contrail. So... It is a very interesting video. Of course, it does appear to be a rocket of some sort, although it is, uh, it does look to be fairly short. But uh, no one has been able to identify what this is. And that's always so flippin' strange. And it seems like, especially around China and Russia, there are these rogue rockets. WTF, you know? It's like, what... You know, how could you have these rogue rockets flying around without anybody knowing what they are? Of course, they could be some sort of secret testing by somebody who who isn't supposed to be um, launching rockets. I haven't heard of one of these being seen in, in uh, Turkey before. But, of course, we had one not too long ago. Vince was talking about it out of L.A. So, really, really weird. These uh, unclaimed, unidentified uh, seemingly rocket flying around. So uh, that's a really interesting video. Also in Canada, a couple stories from this paper called The Now newspaper. I talked about one last time we talked about news, and here's another one just about a UFO over White Rock, which must be someplace in Canada, where they actually speak to a MUFON person out there in Canada. But uh, she had a sighting out there. Otherwise, Lee and I are going to talk a lot about UFO news, but some of the science and space news out there is really interesting lately, too, um, such as another scientist, 
Uh, this guy being a Nobel laureate, actually. He's won a Nobel Prize. And he's kind of, for some reason, come out and said, hey, guys, um, like, you guys are, like, talking to the aliens and, like, twittering them and stuff. And that might not be, like, uh, such a good idea. Uh, duh. So I don't know that he actually talks like that. He would, maybe if he was a younger person, which I can't tell. Uh, but I thought it would be fun to um, pretend that he speaks like that. But yeah, this Nobel laureate is coming out and saying we shouldn't tell aliens where we are, which is kind of an interesting thing to say just in that the technology we have really to beam any messages out into space aren't that good. And uh, really, since we've started to turn on lights, bing, 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 all these lights turning on, that's what that noise was, now... Our planet's covered in lights at night, so, I mean, we're like this lit-up firefly in the sky. So, really, it's kind of difficult, unless we shut down all the radios and TVs and lights and stuff, not to be projecting out into space that, hey, yo, we're here. So, um, maybe, you know, if there are any, so, I don't know. So, it's it's a little too late, I think. Uh, but uh, one of the things Lee and I are going to be talking about is uh, some of the Twitter messages we've sent out to space recently, So, and some controversy around that. Always controversy. What's up with that? This is an exciting project, a couple exciting projects. One of them is a space plane that soon will be launching from Kennedy, uh, Cape Canaveral. It's this organization who is putting together a space plane, and this is kind of funny. They are uh, even doing, well, somebody, there's one, there's a Kickstarter group that's trying to put together a space plane. And then this is another one. This is from X-Core, and they've got a space plane. And it's really funky. It's kind of like a Cessna in space. Cessna in space. It's like this because it looks like kind of a, a a plane from the 80s or something. Uh, or it looks almost like a boat, some kind of fancy boat that they're going to be launching into space, but still a space plane. Hey, that's cool, right? They've been talking about these space planes and how really if you were able to launch one of these babies into suborbital flight and then it coasts and then comes back to the planet, you we could go. I could go from here, Arizona, to visit some of my listeners there in England. Hey, guys. Uh, like in 30 minutes. Shorter. By the time the show was over, I'd be in England. Actually, I don't know if it was that quick, but it was like really quick, like two hours to Tokyo or something. Two hours to Tokyo. So that would be really cool. Uh, anyways, uh, but another commercial project is related to, and you might have seen this, a Dutch company that is creating a base. What they want to do is do like a Big Brother show a reality show where they follow these people to Mars and they live in this community on Mars. It's called Mars One. And, of course, when I told you guys about this a few weeks ago, not very long ago, it sounded ridiculous. And you guys are like, come on, dude. That's crazy. I thought so, too. But they're getting a lot of corporate sponsors, and now it looks like this is actually going to happen. So their plan is to send these robots in the next couple of years 
to space with the materials, and they're going to build like these little pods that people would live in. And then in like 10 years, not even, uh, maybe it was like 2040 or something, people will actually then land on Mars to live in these pods and have, um, well, it looks like they'll separate 2023. That's only 11 years from now that the first then astronauts would land and then they would mingle, sleep with each other, um, and get mad at each other, have fights, and oh, why are you messing with my man? Oh, no, you didn't, and all that Jersey Shore type of stuff. Because it's, if it's going to be interesting, they're going to have to have, you know, you know how reality shows are. They got to have conflict and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, how interesting is this that this is actually happening? This project will be happening. I actually hope they don't put in any kind of um, emotional strife. I, I'm the type of guy that likes boring shows, though. I watch. I'm going to admit to you guys, I watch MASH, okay? I'm sorry. Um, but these shows, because it's like real, you know, I like real stuff. I like science, as you guys can tell, and stuff. Um, you know, I get enough fun talking to buddies and everything, uh, being goofy. I don't need, the, you could save the drama for your mamas, what I'm saying. Not Mars. Don't take our drama to Mars. You know, let's have some scientists and some interesting, you know, oh, look at this. I'm making a calculator. We're going to do this. You know, I think that would be interesting. I'd like to watch some science stuff on Mars. But regardless of what they decide the interactions between the humans will be, they'll have some people on Mars here uh, possibly soon. How interesting is this? How crazy is our world that the first people on Mars and to live on Mars are going to be part of a reality show. I mean, you know what it reminds me of? RoboCop had this vision of this crazy corporate future where everything's ridiculous, and I'll buy that for a dollar. And it's like that's coming true. That is the future, and that and I'll buy that for a dollar. It's going to be on Mars. So um, wild. This world is wild. And people think the paranormal crazy. Just regular life is it's crazy, man. Crazy. So that's what's going on in the news. Lots of very cool and interesting stuff. Let's talk some UFO news with uh, Lee Spiegel. Okay, who better to have on a UFO news special than Mr. UFO News himself, Lee Spiegel. Hello. Is, is that what I am, Mr. UFO News? Yep. Well, well, I don't know when that happened, but I'll take it. <laughs> right now. I'm well, dubbing you, you Mr. UFO News. Okay. Well, you know, I'll, I'll take whatever I can get, Alejandro. How are you doing? Good, good. I think you're the best person to talk to because luckily uh, you've got a cool job where you get to focus on writing stories and doing interviews. So really, I mean, you're just a plethora of UFO news information and plus... You know, what's exciting is, really, I think it's especially since the Chase story, a lot of your stories are going viral. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm very happy about that. Um, Daily Mail writes a story on everything you write about over I know. there in the UK. I know. And, you know, what, what's what's funny, it's become like almost a, almost a daily joke in the Huffington Post newsroom on any... UFO-related story that the Daily Mail puts out, if the byline is not an actual person's name, if the byline says, 
Daily Mail reporter, you can be sure that that's me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, luckily, lately they've been giving you credit and linking to your stories. I mean, this last one that just came out today, I think, uh, they've linked to you and your story, so which they weren't doing before. They weren't even giving you credit at all before, so that's a good thing. Well, one of one of the reasons for that is because they were they were pretty much ripping off a lot of my stuff and not crediting it. That I kept complaining to to my editor, who complained to the legal people at Huffington Post, and then they got in touch with the Daily Mail and said, "You you guys can't do this. It's like cease or des- cease and desist, or we're coming to get you. You know, you can't you can't be doing this kind of stuff, and you're clearly doing it." Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it's good they changed because I mean, you you know, you do this in your stories. You're good about giving credit where credit's due and linking to other stories if, always, if that's where you always. got your info. So yeah. it's the right thing to do. Yeah, and and you know, if they can even rewrite certain things, we do that. Mm-hmm. We, we the way we do it at Huffington Post, we there are like three different kinds of stories. We either have a feature story, which is mostly what I write. Then we have things that are called pickups, uh, and then we have things that are called linkouts. A pickup means um, we'll 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 kind of rework other stories from other media sources, but we will absolutely give them credit. We will link to their stories, and we'll say, you know, according to the Daily Mail or the Daily Mail reports, and and we'll we'll make that line a link that goes right to their story, and we'll basically say so and so told the Daily Mail. We're really right up front about that. We do that just to get some stories out there really fast, especially if I've got a pile of stories that I'm working on and I I can't physically do five feature stories, you know, every day. Just can't do it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes uh, all that I can put the time into is a pickup or just link out to a story and say, hey, folks, go check this out. Right. And, and, you know, uh, I prefer the the features because it gives me a chance to really do some digging and I get to, to, to interview people. That's another difference between the features and the pickups is that if you're doing a feature, then you have to come come up with some original interviews so that you can quote people that you've talked to for your story. And I like doing that. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. And then you get something original. Yeah, exactly. And original and, if you're, if you're lucky, you can call it in your headline, you can call it exclusive. Right. Right. So uh, one of those stories, I mean, the last time we talked, we, we were on together with Grant Cameron and, and Stan Friedman talking about Roswell. Right. And uh, essentially after that, the next big story you had uh, was about Roswell again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A guy named uh, Richard French who's come forward. Yeah. And it, and it turned out to be, for me, uh, an exclusive story. Um, this was um, retired Air Force Colonel Dick French. And and I only found out about them really from uh, the Open Minds uh, website and the folks over there. Our good they, buddy Antonio Huneas. Antonio Huneas um, uh, was able to to spend a little time with with Colonel French, who up until about a month ago was living in Arizona, and he has since moved to Las Vegas. Um, but they got together, and Open Minds actually did a nice little like seven or eight minute video. Of, of French, his life, uh, what he did in the Air Force. He he was one of the people, so he claims, so he says, uh, he was one of the original authors of Project Blue Book. 
the Air Force's original official UFO study. That Not lasted that it was a book that had authors, but I guess uh, right. it did have people who wrote reports. Yeah, and uh, he basically said that in 1952, he was assigned to uh, a desk um, uh, with a couple of other officers, and their job was to take UFO reports that came in and to go through them very carefully and wherever possible, and he was under orders, he said, he was to debunk the reports, basically to say this never happened, it was a, it was a misinterpretation of something, it was swamp gas, it was the planet Venus. He was told to do whatever he could to sweep it all under the rug. They didn't want the Air Force to really pay any attention officially to UFO reports that were coming to them from the public. Mm-hmm. He was he was he's a he's a um, he's a, how do I want to say it? He's a confirmed uh, debunker. Right. He, he is an admitted debunker of UFO reports. Much but like uh, J. Allen Hynek. Right, and Alan Hynek also, you know, after years after he he was the official scientific consultant to Blue Book. Years later, he said, yeah, they, they brought me in, and I was supposed to debunk things. That's how I came up with the whole swamp gas theory in Michigan to explain those UFO sightings. But I, I knew better. I knew that there, it really wasn't swamp gas and that there was something else going on that was more important than the idea of debunking things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this whole story from, from Dick French, just the fact that he was a, a, a blue book debunker, that was just the tip of the iceberg of the stuff he was saying to me. Right. I, didn't, I, I did not know where this interview was, was going. Y- you know, when I, when I called him up and he agreed to talk to me, I was just going to have him talk about what he did at Project Blue Book and some of the reports that, that he debunked. He, he claims that he, he, has, he flew more combat mission, missions as an Air Force pilot than anybody else in history. And, and and I just thought well, he was an interesting guy, and it'll make for a good story. And and I looked at the the video that Open Minds had done with him, so I, I kind of used them as my guide of things that I wanted to ask him about. And while we were talking, he just very casually, all of a sudden said to me, you know, there was not just one crash at Roswell. There were two. I went, excuse me? What, what did you just say? Said, yeah, there were there were two UFO crashes, and um, the reason that they crashed was not because of anything they did wrong, but uh, the first crash that uh, that most people know about, the historical one, uh, was actually brought down by a, an American experimental aircraft out of White Sands, New Mexico, that actually used some kind of electromagnetic pulse weapon. They aimed it at the UFO. It knocked out down. It knocked out its controls and down it came. I went, wow. Now there's a story. Right. Uh, It was like, oh my gosh. Well, tell me more. Tell me more. When I asked him how he found out about this information, he said that uh, he was in uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico, at the time in 1947, he was he was being tested in something that was called an altitude chamber. It's an annual requirement for officers, and 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 he, and he was very specific about the, the story that he told me. And he said that he wouldn't give the name of his source, um, 
but he did say that it was just it was another uh, Air Force official or another military official who he trusted and gave him the story. And the same guy apparently told him that a few days later, another UFO showed up that, that the military thought was maybe in the area looking for the first one, looking for their buddies to see mm-hmm. what happened to them, you know. And, and somehow that one came down, too. Hmm. He gave me no more details about that. And and that was pretty much the end of the story. But I knew that it was hot enough that I couldn't just not sit on it. And, uh, you know, and then as it turned out, when I put it into my story, um, probably the person who first responded to that was another military retired colonel, uh, our mutual friend, Army Colonel John Alexander, who basically said there was no chance this ever happened. Uh, you know, he had top secret clearance as well, and and Alexander said that that in the 1980s he was in in fact involved with developing anything known as a pulse power weapon, like what French claimed brought the UFO down. He and Alexander said to me, we couldn't have done it in the, in in the 80s when I was working on it, and in the 60s, and they certainly couldn't do it in the 1940s. We didn't have laser weapons in that time frame so so that brought the the uh, controversy even higher because then all the people out there reading the story were commenting on it you know some people believed it some people didn't believe it people were scrambling around they wanted more information and it still hasn't really been worked out definitively about what happened all yeah. we know all we know is what this guy said yeah, in the end, we don't, we don't know. I mean, you would think and since the 40s we've had these weapons, and they shot down two, and we, we really haven't heard of them shooting down UFOs using something like that. Uh, it seems kind of weird. I mean, the guy reminds me of, because he seems kind of be all over the place, he reminds me of um, the witness that uh, the other lady had. What was her name for the Big Area 51 book that came out? Oh, uh, Amy Jacobson. Yeah, Amy Jacobson, where her witness that she based all of her craziness on was kind of just tangent man. And he even said, you know what, I'm an old guy. I don't know if these things are real or not. Uh, he told that to one reporter who kind of just helped bust open and break apart her ideas. So so who knows? Now, what was funny, though, is that uh, recently Larry King has started to do this online show, and uh, he had on James Fox and... Um, Tom DeLong from Blink-182 right. and uh, Michael Shermer, and he brought up that story among all the other stories, so that was kind of, he picked up on that one. Yeah, and, and, you know, the story has just kind of quietly gone away, but I'm sure it'll resurface again, and one place that it might resurface is um, there was a news item last month where I believe uh, AMC uh, TV channel is uh, has bought the rights to Annie Jacobson's Area 51 book, right. and they're going to turn it into a whole dramatic series. That's so funny. But, so, of course, they, they, they're they so loosely based that it, they could do anything. Who knows what they'll do? Oh, yeah, I, I know. It, it's like, you know, they put out a press release just to kind of tease people. And, uh, and, and you know how I feel about especially recent press releases that tease people about something that's coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get into that whenever you want to get into that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, you're right. It does seem like the story it spiked for a minute. It did get you know around there, and then it it has kind of faded. Um, maybe because of you know your inclusion of what John Alexander had to say, who's who's definitely a very credible person. Well, I I think I think that a lot of these stories, Alejandro, they you know they come and they go and they peak for a little while. Um, and then they they get replaced by the next big story. Yeah. And and uh, you, you know I I find that in in my re- reporting, part of my my daily job is I have to come up with as many interesting stories as I yeah. can, as, as you do, and as all the the other people we know who are out there who are writers. And and the responsibility that we have is that we've got to present this stuff the most factual way that we can. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we don't do our homework uh, and we get something wrong, or if, if people perceive that we've said something wrong in a story, uh, and if we don't kind of t- um, respond to it, then it hurts our credibility. Right. Uh, it, it is kind of a vicious circle. It, it, it's like I can't respond to every single comment that comes in on my story. I can't even read them all because there are so many. So there are there are a lot of people out there who think I'm not doing the job I should be doing simply because they don't know enough to to get out of their armchairs and go do some legwork on their own and come up with a valid opinion before they start spouting out criticisms to people like me and you. Right. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, it's not out of spite, but I don't have time to go through all of that. Sometimes I'll glance, and uh, especially the nice comments, I'll say thank you, but I really don't have time. It just takes up enough time just to look through all of this stuff. And I always figure I would rather spend my time researching and getting stories out than trying to, um, you know, chase my tail by commenting on everybody's Yeah, responses. you're right, because, I, I, I mean, I realize if I if I spent my time reading all the comments, responding to all the comments, you know what would happen? I'd end up never writing another story again because I wouldn't have any time to. Yeah, and there are people in these forums, and that's what they do. They'll be talking back and forth all day long about all this stuff. Yep, yep. Now, I did want to touch on this just because it is kind of interesting, and I was wondering if there was any follow-up, and that was this uh, trans-Eurasian UFO search expedition where these guys in Russia were going to go out and um, search for some UFOs. Yeah, they were. Uh, the, the story there was that they were going to start from one end of Russia to another, and and they were basically going to like move across Russia, um, following the trail of of different UFO sightings, and and see what they could what they could find out. And uh, I don't think that they've they've finished. They were doing it as a two month expedition across Russia, and I don't think that they're finished yet. And they started out in, in one area, and they, they actually brought all kinds of photographic equipment, and they packed their bags and their tents and equipment, and they're just calling it a cross-country trek, hoping to capture photographic evidence of any kind of possible alien activity. And, they, and you were right. They're calling it the Trans-Eurasian UFO Search Expedition. And so that'll um, go through August and September, and hopefully I guess we'll hear something in October or something about uh... – yeah, I, I think uh, the story came out. I published my story um, at the beginning beginning of August. So <clears throat> probably in another three or four weeks, uh, I'll do a follow up to see what, if anything, has come from it. Because there've been no other reports coming out of there. So 
I'm going to I'm going to take that to assume they haven't come up with anything really special yet. But you know, it you never know what's going to happen. Right. Now on this one, this next story we're going to, I know you have some behind the scenes um stuff that you, you you know people might not be clear on. And it it kind of relates to what you were just talking about is accuracy and uh you know your carefulness about you know you're just so adamant and you're definitely have even a compulsion which is great for a journalist to be accurate and uh your story about the wow signal and yeah. the tweets they were sending to space yeah. kind of uh brought up some or ran into some trouble there well i first i first started writing about this back in june when the national geographic channel started to promote their their new series called Chasing UFOs. And they did like a double promotion. They said, you know, make sure you come and watch Chasing UFOs every week. And what we're also going to do uh, in conjunction with Chasing UFOs, we're going to pull out this this old, uh, what was called the wow signal um, that was received um, on Earth by SETI scientists in 1977. Uh, the the actual the 35th anniversary um, was on August 15th, uh, when the scientists detected some kind of an unexplained signal that seemed to come from the um, the constellation of Sagittarius, and and the computer readout of the spike on the signal that they were that they were examining, the computer readout was so odd that one of the uh, scientists. Um, pulled it off the computer, and in the left-hand margin of it, he wrote in big red letters, wow, with an exclamation point, just so that they wouldn't forget what it was that they were talking about. And that became known as the wow signal. Now, SETI scientists, SETI being the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, astronomers tried to verify that it was an actual signal from aliens, because in science, before you can make a pronouncement about something, you, you have to test it to make sure that it's provable. And so the best way in science to do that is to get it to repeat. So you have something to look at more than once, and it never repeated. They could never confirm that it was if it was from an extraterrestrial source. So, so therefore, there was never any official attempt to send a signal back into space to try and say, hello. Here we are on Earth. Yeah, we heard you. Yeah, we heard you. So, you know, it will take another 50 years <laughs> and try and get a dialogue going. So so National Geographic decided to <clears throat> solicit viewers from around the world to, to get involved with this great big social experiment using Twitter. And they basically said at the end of June, uh, go to Twitter and create your own personal messages and we will... And on the on the 35th anniversary of the Wow Signal in the middle of August, we will transmit all of your Twitter messages back into space, and we'll do it from the Arecibo Telescope, uh, the biggest uh, uh, telescopic uh, radio telescope in the world down in uh, Puerto Rico. So they they said, you know, we're going to give you seven or eight hours to send us your tweets and your messages and any little videos that you want to include in there. So, you know, I, I said, well, look, when we get closer to August 15th, I'll do a follow-up story. Let's see 
how many people tweeted or tweeted, <laughs> as the case may be, and we'll do a nice follow-up story. Let's see, you know, where where are they going to actually aim the telescope? To and somehow it included videos. Like I love the Stephen Colbert one. I don't know how they sent videos out there, but yeah, all they did was I think they limited the videos to maybe maybe thirty seconds long, and the people could you could just do your own video and and attach it. Mm-hmm. as a video attachment, and then they just included all that stuff into... Mm. They, then they processed it and digitized it and put it all together in some kind of a file, an encrypted file, that was then presented to the scientists at the Arecibo Observatory. So, so again, I thought it was, it was a good story. It was a good follow-up story. And about a week before the um, anniversary, before they were going to do the Twitter back into space. Uh, I I called one of the scientists at Arecibo, did an interview, so he, he would tell me exactly how they were going to technically put all the Twitters into one file and send them off at the push of a few buttons. And I called National Geographic and I said, you know, I think that my readers would really like to know how many tweets did you get from people around the world? And they said, well, it's a good question. We'll get back to you. We'll let you know. <laughs> so... I waited a couple of days, and they finally got back to me, and they said, well, uh, we got about 200. I went, I- I'm sorry, what? Yes, we got about 200 tweets. And I, and I said immediately, no, that can't be. That can't be true. I don't believe that. Um, you need to please recheck your figures. You're telling me that National Geographic spent a lot of money on this global promotion to get people to tweet messages back to space and all you got were like 200 people sending you messages no i'm i don't believe that yeah i was yeah. bummed when you told me that because i thought great that means that they lost most of them and my tweet isn't going to get tweeted because <laughs> I, I remember when i tweeted you know at least one evening i was watching the tweets and there were tons of them there were a lot of them and i was looking at them you know of course some were funny you listed a few on the site Yes. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, so I sent a, a tweet or two or something. And uh, so there were a lot of people participating. I did, too. I, I sent a, a tweet. My tweet said something like, um, hello, space folks. Um, you probably already know who I am. And all that I ask is that you give me the first interview because I've earned it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my tweet. Mm-hmm. That'd be a great so, interview. <laughs> well, yeah, as long as we can talk the same language. They'll probably give it to Steve Colbert. Oh, uh, wouldn't that be a shame? Yeah. Well, I hope that they do. It would be the... funny, but of course we would want to get some real info. If if they give the first alien interview to Colbert, I hope they do it that involves some kind of bodily probing. Yeah, well, in his video he asked for them to abstain from, from that. <laughs> I know. Uh and well, you saw, probably saw the video of one of the videos that was sent into space from Miss uh, Miss Universe. Yeah, that was terrible. Don't hurt my face or something. Where she like said, that. "Yeah, if you come here, if you've come here to uh, to take us over, please don't hurt my face." <laughs> yeah. And all I wanted to do at that point was to hurt her face. Yeah, I think don't think you're the only one. <laughs> so, so like National Geographic got back to me. It took them two more days to get back to say, "Well, we uh, as far as we know." The, the vendor that we've used to collect all of the tweets from around the world, they have assured us that the number that I gave you, the around 200, is the accurate number, and that's what was being sent down to Arecibo. 
And I said, well, all right, and that's what I'm going to put in my story, but I, I don't feel right about this. So I put the story out there. The story came out on a Monday that basically said, here's what's happening Wednesday. This is when all the tweets are going up, all the 200 tweets from around the world. And then on Wednesday, I, I tuned into the live um, presentation of it on the Internet, on the National Geographic Channel, and and they mentioned on on the show that we we have brought with us today more than twenty thousand tweets to send into space, and I went what twenty thousand tweets? Which sounds more right. I mean, that's the yeah. number I was expecting. Yeah, me too. And and I I went ballistic, and I immediately got in touch with because uh, my story was already out there saying it was right. two hundred tweets, you know. So how foolish did I feel? You looked like a big fool. Well, well, even when I looked in the <laughs> mirror, yes, it's true. I'm a fool. <laughs> I know. What have you done to me? Yeah, I know. Like, what else can I do today to look even more foolish? Uh, so I got in touch with Nat Geo, and I said, hey, look, um, you guys told me 200 tweets. I doubted it. I implored you to look into this. You got back to me. And this is what, what happened. And now I'm told that it's 20,000 tweets. What are we going to do about this? We basically have lied to the readers. And they got all upset. Well, we'll, we'll check it out. We'll get back to you. <laughs> I said, yeah, you, you better. The next day, I got an email from the director of communications at Nat Geo in which she said, we are so sorry. We apologize. We made a mistake. Um, the initial information that we got from our vendor that collected the tweets was that it was about 200. Then we're now we're told that the file where all the tweets had been compiled, it became corrupt, a corrupted file that told us there were only 200. It turns out that, yes, there were more than 20,000. We're very embarrassed about this, and we hope that this didn't cause you or your readers any further embarrassment. So... I wrote an update to the story and stuck it into the story and said to the readers, basically, I wanted the readers to know that it wasn't my fault. I didn't come up with inaccurate information that, that you know, yeah. National Geographic has informed me that they made a mistake. It wasn't the right number of tweets. And this is the, here's the correct number. And you know what, Alejandro? Other people have said to me since, maybe you even said it to me, how do we even know if they're still lying or not, or they've given us wrong information? We, we, we don't know. There's no way of knowing exactly how many tweets were sent into that signal that's on its way to deep space now. We don't know. There's no way of knowing. Yeah, because unfortunately, and even with my experience with this show, and of course you've had some interviews, they don't mind stretching the truth. They don't mind flubbing stuff. And which is really unfortunate, especially for documentaries. Um, yeah. So you can never be sure. And unfortunately, you've worked with a lot of, of media and I've worked with a lot of documentaries. And the truth and the absolute, the details are not always uh, a priority for them. And And it should be. It really should be, especially for a documentary. Yeah. A documentary should have the same journalistic integrity as as you do, or as any news reporter out there does. And, you know, a lot of people commented 
basically saying that even even the the TV series Chasing UFOs, uh, they were so disappointed in how it was presented by National Geographic that people have been very critical, claiming that Nat Geo isn't really the same company that it used to. Nat- National Geographic used to stand for something really credible, mm. and that they've they've come down a few notches from the kind of programs that they've recently put out in the air. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it does change because, I mean, a lot of people, well, you know, I think we've even talked about it where, wow, it's Nat Geo, you know, this means it's going to be taken to the next level. Yeah. And uh, lately it's it's kind of the same old, same old dog and pony show. Yeah, although I guess maybe now the next level means not upward but downward. Yeah, I think you're right. The downward spiral. Yeah, so so that was that was an interesting one to to be involved with, and yeah, you know, you know again, it, it it came back to how many people commenting on my story saying, "What is wrong with you? How could there only be two hundred tweets?" Well, yeah, I agree, guys, but what can I do about That's it? That's what they told me. The good yeah. thing is, is that if it the boss, if if the number was closer to twenty thousand, it means they got all the tweets, and our tweets really went out there. Because my disappointment when you when they said 200 meant that they disregarded a bunch and they just chose a batch because they don't really care. Yeah, so I mean, who knows what really happened? But at least hopefully it means that you know our tweets really got out there because it's kind of fun. Well, what, what what they did was which is something I, I wrote about and I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, 35 years ago when they first detected the signal, we didn't have the Kepler spacecraft that's been just cranking out all kinds of new numbers of new mm-hmm. planets that it's been discovering. And so what they did was uh, to figure out exactly where to aim the signal with all the tweets, uh, they, they, they consulted with the SETI astronomers and who gave them really good targets where there might actually be ETs out there based on the information from ground-based telescopes and the Kepler spacecraft. And so they've, they've sent the tweets to three different locations um, where we know that there are stars that have planets in orbits around them and where some of those planets might be Earth-like planets. So that, that's a good thing. I, I'm glad they did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fun. I wanted to tweet the ETs. I'm glad they get, they're hopefully getting our tweets. Yeah, well, you know, and you, the, reality, <laughs> the reality is, uh, let's say uh, in terms of travel time, one of the stars that they tweeted uh, is 57 light years away from Earth. So that what that means is, some people who are alive now will still be alive when the signal gets there. Well, and what I under, <laughs> from what I understand, uh, those signals may degrade too, and they may never get there. Ah, see. Yep. Hey, oh oh man. well. <laughs> yeah, we we need hyperdrive or yeah. or light speed. We need we need to be able to just fly to these places and get it over with. Yep. But I guess that was our, our uh, closest thing to a message in the model. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the next story that you had that went viral, Daily Mail et al., well, even more <laughs> so, MSNBC and and Fox News, I think, they all picked it up, was, was the UFOs on Mars. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, y- you know, you could, you could have almost predicted that as soon as the the Curiosity rover was going to land, um, everybody would be coming out of the woodwork uh, claiming, I mean, they were claiming seeing UFOs even as 
like within a minute after the, the lander touched uh-huh. down on Mars. I mean, it started that fast. What was that in the background? What was that on the horizon? What were those little dots of light? That And what was that strange cloud that suddenly disappeared? I mean, literally, it happened that fast. And, and when they started um, releasing the high-definition images of the landscape around the rover, people started you know, chiming in again. Look at that rock. It looks like a finger. Look at that. It, you know, it, it looks like you know, it could be a piece of a, of a machine. What's that? What are those objects, those saucer-shaped objects in the sky? We put some filters over the picture. Now we can see them better. It's like, oh, my God. And then all of a sudden, Alejandro, I got caught up in it yeah. because – I was I was zooming in on one of the panorama images of uh, on the of the horizon of the landscape, and I noticed this very circular, it almost looked like a like a dome shaped object right on the horizon, far off in the distance. And the, the 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 more I zoomed in on it, the more circular and odd it looked. So I put a little slideshow together for my story about it. And I sent my images to the folks at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory who were running the whole show, you know. And I, and I spoke to uh, an assistant of one of the, uh, the scientists out there. And I said, would you get this to, into the hands of someone out there? I'm with the Huffington Post. I'm not saying that I think I've, I'm seeing an alien spaceship because I will, I will never say that in any story that I ever write. All I'm saying is, I see something very curious on the horizon. I would like someone from JPL to get back to me to give me some early explanation, even if you just want to say it looks like a very big circular rock. Mm -hmm. I I don't care what you say, but please get back to me and give me some kind of an explanation. Well, that was almost three uh, three weeks ago now. No one's ever gotten back to me on it. Yeah. What I think is exciting about, like, the... The what I believe to be a rock, like that you point out or something, is that uh, at least scientists are, are now agreeing, and this wasn't the case before, that um, you know there those round rocks are definitely show evidence of uh, wear from weather, if not an abundance of water, and I think that's pretty exciting. I saw, I think his first name is Roger Malin. Uh, from the jet propulsion system. He's in charge of it. Like, maybe 10 years ago in Denver at the museum. And yeah. he was showing this stuff and arguing that, look, this dirt and these tiny rocks, there's no other way they could have been made unless there was weather, maybe even oceans and rivers, and there was a lot of water on Mars. And at that point, that was a very controversial position. Uh, now not so much, but that's just mind blowing though. That you know, at least at one point, Mars may have been very Earth-like. Um, well, yeah, and and you know the the other thing that has me very curious also, and I I think I'm going to do a story about this. Yeah, now like I'm giving it away, and we'll see how many other people beat me to it. <laughs> um, it's not just these circular rocks that I happen to see on the horizon or something that looks like it may be a in the shape of a finger or some of the more, the more humorous pictures that have been going around. One picture that shows a half buried um, cup from Starbucks, 
<laughs> Maybe you've seen that. Or another one shows a half-buried Volkswagen Beetle on oh, the surface funny. of Mars. Um, there have been some very, very provocative images that have come out of past Mars rover expeditions and um, spacecraft orbiting, you know, reconnaissance orbiting Mars, taking uh, very high-definition pictures of various things on the Martian surface, really interesting, provocative stuff that can be seen. And I'm thinking of putting together like quite a big gallery and talking to some people, some people uh, at JPL, if they'll talk to me about it and have them say, have them really explain why does this look like a forest with, mm-hmm. with trees in this area? They have to find some of those. But you know what? They I haven't seen a lot of definition around is some of these ones that look like lakes or rivers. Yeah, or I, I know. I remember one that showed it looked like you know water spouting out of a side of a hill. I mean that that was cool. Yeah, like like what what are those things? Yeah. What are what are what is this system of tubes that have been photographed on Mars? The tubes that seem to come out of the underground they, they they're on the surface yeah floor. and from and what they, i can they, understand they have guesses but they don't know for sure yeah and, and if they don't know why don't they send the rover there I, I, yeah exactly. i mean that's more sexy that's more exciting you know that's going to get people I, really excited instead let's send them to another crater <laughs> yeah you know there's all this weird stuff on mars and we're in a whole different area where the the cool stuff isn't even near right so, again, you know, it's not up for me to decide or how NASA should spend their money. Or maybe we've already got a colony up there. I mean, I don't know. There's all the all the conspiracy theories about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do know that there are pictures. You and I have a mutual friend, um, uh, George Filer. Mm-hmm. Okay, a former oh, Army. Oh, yeah. Okay, an Army. Uh, was, was he a colonel? When he, yeah, before he I retired? think he was a major. Uh, yeah, I, major. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, at least a major. Well, he's got a he's got a really interesting website called um, Filers Files, mm-hmm. and and he's very interested in. Uh, in fact, I first met him at the I think it was at the Mufon Symposium last year in Irvine, and his whole presentation was on weird things that have been photographed on Mars, mm-hmm. and and so there are people with credible backgrounds who think that. Some kind of research should be going, should be ongoing about what's happening on Mars. If we're going to spend this kind of money to get there, and supposedly it's it's our money, it's our tax dollars, then I, I would think that we should even have some say as to where we send these spacecraft. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I I'm very intrigued about the whole Martian stuff. Now I now I you know I don't see in the rocks something too compelling, and I do. You know, it does look like they had a good explanation, and so did Mark D'Antonio, for some of those anomalies. However, I just wanted to know if you had heard any feedback, because nobody really, I I didn't see any analysis on the video that had the little white dot, one that flew up, and then one that kind of went over the horizon. I saw Life's Little Mysteries, the skeptic guys, uh, and this was posted on MSNBC, said it it was photoshopped, and that those uh, weren't in the original video yeah and i i saw that explanation too and you know what alejandro it's like sure why why not if if we're going to have to come up with some easy explanation 
that that most people out there will say, oh yeah, it could be that. Just tell them it was Photoshop, and they'll they'll go away. Oh, you know what? But I think the thing was that that wasn't even a video. That was an image. Well, there, there was a, or it was a, it might have been a series of of images placed next to each other because what I saw actually showed a little white dot moving from left to right, so you could actually see it moving. Yeah, and that's what I mean. The the movement was very fluid, where it wouldn't be like that with the images, like that yeah. incredible image where that guy took all the images and put them yeah. together of the descent. Yeah. Pretty cool. So, yeah, it's like, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, and yeah. damned Photoshop, right? <laughs> yep, damn Photoshop. If it would have never been invented, but then we wouldn't have had all those Sarah Palin pictures that came out. That was all photoshopped, right? Yeah, that was all some Photoshop <laughs> stuff. All right. All right, so moving on from Mars, I it didn't really go viral, actually, the next story. But it's my favorite story in a long time, just because I love this kind of stuff. And I know you really love this story, and, and at least I didn't see it go viral too much. But it was um, a little bit. The British Civil Aviation Authority, and this was kind of weird, and uh, maybe you can fill in some stuff for me because we already knew. I mean, the it was like a it was a couple years ago because they closed in 2009. The MOD said we don't want to hear your UFO stories anymore. Get off our backs. Because I even interviewed Nick Pope, and he gave us a quote um, similar to what he told you: is that. They don't want to hear from the public, but they're kind of doing some behind the scenes. They're still looking into it because they have to. Um, but uh, all of a sudden, it's a story again. MOD doesn't want to do UFOs. Well, we know that. But well, in yeah. your story, their their Civil Aviation Authority was looking at UFO investigations. I, I you know, and this comes down to again my my basic gripe about how people report in the media and almost make up stuff. In order to make it sound better, this happens all the time, every day. And sometimes I just want to maybe just get out of this business altogether because I sometimes <laughs> sometimes feel like I'm the only one out here really trying to come up with some facts. I mean, when this story came out, like it was a week ago, they made it seem when I say they, other media places, they made it seem like the UK's Ministry of Defense just ended. It's UFO investigations, right. okay? But that's not true. And practically 90 or 95% of the stories that I looked at, because when I'm putting a story together, I will check other sources to mm -hmm. see if they're all saying the same thing. And most of them basically said the UK's Ministry of Defense has just ended its UFO investigations. And I went, well, wait a minute, that's not true. They ended their investigation three years ago. That's different from saying they just ended it. Mm -hmm. and people people don't get that. They don't get that that you that you can just make this stuff up and 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 put the timeline in however you want it to to work for your purposes. Um, and and they 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 said that you know they ended the UFO investigations and and they and most of these publications were were also saying according to an MOD spokesperson and they were quoting from someone that, who may have been from the MOD, but but again, I checked it out, and, they, they, and again, they said, and the spokesman said, and again, I, and I thought, well, okay, I'd like to know who the spokesperson is. Well, you know what I did, Alejandro? I did what all the other media people should have done. I went to the Ministry of Defense 
files. Mm-hmm. And I and I did a search, and I did a search for this information, and I found the exact quotes that all the media publications said, according to a spokesperson. No, it wasn't a spokesperson. It was the entire official statement from the Ministry of Defense. It wasn't any one person who made mm. a quote, you know, or statement to the press. Nobody bothered to say, here's an actual, you know, quote from the Ministry of Defense. So what did I do? I linked my readers directly to the Ministry of Defense website where they could see, here's the actual statement from the Ministry of Defense from 2009. Right. Let's get it straight, people. Mm-hmm. You know, so, 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 and again, people didn't quite understand what was going on here. The, the Ministry of Defense ended its UFO investigation in 2009. Officially, they're out of the business. But then what happened since then the, the British Civil Aviation Authority, unbeknownst to the public, they continued to collect reports, but only reports that were made by pilots because of the possible flight safety issues. Mm-hmm. And so essentially what the Civil Aviation Authority was saying to the public is, we don't want you to report to us anymore because unless you're a pilot, you're probably not a very credible UFO reporter. Mm-hmm. So take your UFO st- stories and you can report them to Bufora, the British UFO Research o- Association, and which which is the British version of the Mutual UFO Network here in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they basically said, if you're not a pilot, don't call us. So that's that's not really good. That's not a good attitude to take. Yeah, it's unfortunate because that's essentially what Nick Pope said. He was, I remember, shocked when they closed those files. He was like, because, I mean, they start releasing their secret files, which show a lot of great cases. And I, I wrote a story for Open Minds, actually, that had a bunch of really good cases that were totally counter to what the MOD said. Oh, we right. don't show any evidence, including, yeah, some FAA ones. Like, there were these pilots who had a gigantic um, triangular craft where they had to evade, and they were upset, and it was in their news in the 90s, uh, and they kept saying, we want to know what that was, we want an answer from the MOD, and they kept demanding it, and finally the MOD said, oh, well, we looked into it, and there was nothing in your area, so don't worry about it, and that was their official response, and they're like, and they're at a loss, so I mean, a lot of great cases um, and they're just kind of like, well, we don't want to hear from the public anymore. Sorry. Yeah, and you know, I the, the reason why I even got onto this whole thing about what the Civil Aviation Authority is doing is because I got a note from David Clark. Right, that's cool. Um, David had just written on his own website his own piece about this. David is is the official United Kingdom uh, consultant to the National Archives there. Whenever any new files are going to be released by the British authorities into the into the public, he gets them first and he helps to prepare them to release them to the media and to the public. And he's a doc what is his PhD in? He's what well, uh he's a journalism lecturer at uh it's called Sheffield Hallam University. Okay, journalism. That's interesting because Oh yeah. And and he's sort of an enigma because and that's one of the reasons I was excited about your story also because he's very skeptical yes. um, and conservative, but then he sends you this great story yep. about their civil aviation looking into great cases. Yeah, and you know he, he's still skeptical, and he, and he said to me, but the one thing he won't, he, he doesn't want to stand for, 
is when the public is being duped. And he felt that that's what, what's been going on here. And he doesn't work for the government there, so he feels like he can be as honest about it as he can. Um, and one you know, of these cases he turned you on to is really oh, cool. A great case. Yeah. I, you know, he, and it's a case that actually uh, had come out originally uh, in, uh, in the U.K. back in, I guess it was like 1980, um, when, when the case first happened. No, the case happened in 1985. There was a British pilot private pilot who was actually flying a Cessna uh, Skymaster plane over the Mojave Desert in America. And he and his, uh, his name is David Hastings. David and his co-pilot were flying over the Mojave Desert, not too far away, by the way, from Area 51. Mm. Okay. And he basically, uh, and so he agreed to talk to me about this, about this case. And he said to me that, that they were just sitting there in the cockpit when they both suddenly saw what looked like a speck out on the horizon at their 12 o'clock position. He said the speck suddenly grew very fast, very big. And then he said they both saw this huge shadow go right over the, the, the top of their plane. And he said the most amazing thing about it was that it made no noise and there was no movement or turbulence at all that they would have expected it would cause. And he, he said, we looked at each other and said, what the hell was that? So then both pilots said that they felt that there was something off in the air, off on the left side of their plane, but they didn't see anything there. They just had a feeling. And so David unstrapped himself, went to the back of the plane, grabbed his, his camera, came back to the pilot seat, strapped himself back in, and just aimed his camera off, out of the window and took a picture, and all that, all that he could see was the wing of their Cessna and the ground below. So he took two pictures of that, and that's it. And and then, then, then they had the sense that whatever this thing was that they felt, it was just suddenly gone. So they got to San Francisco. They got the pictures developed, and one of the two pictures showed that in between the wing of the plane and the ground was this large cigar-shaped, elongated craft just hovering there in the air right next to them. Mm-hmm. And, and he that, got you a high-quality copy, a color oh, copy of that picture. Yeah, because I, I had found a bad uh, color uh, rendition of it on Google, and and it had, it had copyright some other company, and I thought, well, I'm not going to start trying to track these people down to see if I can use the picture. So, uh, and David Clark had sent me a black and white version of the picture. And I thought, you know, I really would like to put a color version in my story. So I called uh, David Hastings, the pilot. I called him again in England. I said, hey, David, any chance you might have a good color version of the picture? Because I found another version of it, but someone else is claiming the copyright. And he wrote me back right away. He said, nobody else should have that color picture. I'm only giving it to you and David Clark. Here it is. And he sent me like a gigantic, like almost first (laughs) high definition, beautiful picture. It was like almost, you know, four megabytes by four megabytes in pixels. It was huge and it was magnificent. And that's what I ended up putting in my story in full color. Yeah, it's such a strange picture. It's really cool. And it's like this translucent, fuzzy. It's almost like it was partly cloaked or something. Yeah. Um. Um. Bar-shaped object. 
with this strange kind of, like they said, shadow under it. Yep. And even like like it's bending light. I mean, because the, there's a shadow, but at the borders of the shadow, it's kind of lighter. It's such a strange picture. And, you know, as as I, I, I get crazy about this, the commenters kept saying things like, one commenter to the story said, well, <clears throat> this is obviously something that's been photoshopped um, uh, because it's, and most, most photographic experts will probably agree that it's easy to Photoshop this. So case closed. Another person wrote, well, probably all that they did was just tape something to the, to the window of the plane and then just take a picture of it. And so I, I responded to those comments because, because, you know, I had to, first of all, I said to, I said to the first person, well, it would have been a neat trick to Photoshop this because this took place in 1985, years before the word Photoshop was even learned or knew. Okay, we had no no such thing as Photoshop. Also, um, what gives you the right, without investigating this case on your own, you know, Mister Armchair Critic? How could you go ahead and just immediately assume that the integrity of of both pilots? Uh, is an issue here that they must have lied because they must have just used some scotch tape and put something on the window. You're automatically debunking them without knowing the facts. And this is a problem I have with a lot of you people out there. And this is the kind of thing that has caused good people to, to have their lives ruined because of folks like you who would rather just spout off about something that you have no business spouting off about without checking the facts yourself. Yeah, no, see, I no. never would have responded. But um, because this is, now you've touched on one of my major pet peeves, which is those people, and there's so many of them, they, like that guy, the first guy, he didn't even read the story. He looked right. at the picture, made a comment. And, I mean, that's what really frustrates me. So many people will say, well, like, especially when I post something on Facebook, because Facebook shows you the first sentence in a picture. And yeah. they'll start commenting, oh, that picture is this or that picture is that. And it's like, well, if you would have read the story, you would know that you have answers to all of these questions you're bringing up. But if you're not even going to bother to read the story, come on. I mean, how much research does that take, let alone all the research you've done to, to actually you know, get all this information together for people? It, it's very frustrating. Oh, it is. And it gets right back to that whole... It's it's the you know it's the um, what what's the word that they use in, in meditation um, in meditation you, it's called your mantra okay mm -hmm. it, it, it's the mantra of debunkers what Stan Friedman talks about don't bother me with the facts my mind is already made up mm -hmm. I mean really come on folks <laughs> it reminds me of um, I I mean it, it's to digress on the the because uh, I know now that we're ranting. <laughs> you know, to the um, Larry King show, because Michael Shermer brought up on that show, you know, it was kind of cool because James Fox put him to the ta task. Have you actually researched these cases? You're saying you're a researcher, and he even said there aren't these debunkers who actually do any research. And Michael Shermer said, sure, I am. And so he said, well, what are you talking about? What have you researched? And he said he started going off about Roswell and how a movie came out in the 80s about Roswell, and the witnesses only came out after this movie, and everything was just like this movie. Yeah. Dead wrong. There was no yeah. movie 
there was a book that came out full of witnesses. They had witnesses before they even told the public. They had over 100 witnesses before they even told the public about the case. They heard about Jesse Marcel, you know, our buddy Stanton Friedman. Yeah. Um, then they didn't just take his word, even though he's very credible. They went and found, asked some other people that were there. They said, yes, Jesse's right. And so they had a ton of witnesses before they even wrote this book of research, which was the first thing that came out, not some goofy movie. So like you're talking about, even people at the Shermer level are debunking without doing any of the research. And then even worse, claiming they have done the research. Right. And and because of that, because they're introduced as an expert, they're introduced as, you know, he was introduced as the, the executive editor of Skeptic Magazine. And and to prove that he is the executive editor, what did he do for most of the, the time that he was on the show? He sat there holding up the magazine cover so the so the camera would catch it. You know, to me, that's like that's like the, the biggest no-no that any talk show guest can do on any program. If you want to lose your entire credibility with me, um, go ahead, show your book, show your magazine, because that's not what you should be there doing. That's up to a producer of a show to, have, to capture an image of your book or your magazine and let the producers put it up on the screen when they want to. But for you to show it as, as a way of reminding people, oh, look at me, I'm a writer, I must be telling the truth, it, it's shameful, I think. Mm-hmm. It's awful. And then, of course, you have great stories like, you know, and I'm sure they're not going to read this story, like the story you wrote here on the British, because they said some other interesting things, and in, in, uh, like... They didn't just say they're still investigating. I mean, I think right, uh, one of the quotes in your story is that we receive at least one unknown a month. That's right. Um, yeah, and uh, and that actually only came out really by by accident. Um, it was uh, it was on a, a, a BBC tele a radio program a couple of weeks ago called Today, and they were interviewing. Uh, someone who was like an actual uh, official with uh, the British government. And they were talking to him. His name was Richard Deacon. He's the head of the, the UK's National Air Traffic Control Services. And the, the host of the show just out of nowhere casually asked him if he or anybody on his staff had ever been unable to identify a flying object. And the guy had to come up with some kind of an answer. So he said, well... Occasionally, there are objects that don't conform to normal traffic patterns, uh, and this is not just from UK, but from around the world. And then, the, then he kind of put the nail in the coffin by saying, "I have to say, it's not something that occupies a huge amount of my time." Mm-hmm. And then he and then he made one more statement about it. He basically said that these sightings occur around once a month. So right. David Clark did the math and figured, well, once a month—that's maybe twelve a year. That objects that they cannot identify that's worth investigating yeah yeah you see that's a big deal i mean that that's uh that's really cool i mean that's a government agency or the civil aviation so they're civil but uh yeah yeah they can explain at least one a month wow i know you know people keep screaming when is disclosure happening well hey it's happening just you know put put your ears on and listen and Pay attention, and you'll see we're in the middle of disclosure. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, we're so much in the middle of disclosure 
that major secrets are going to be revealed <laughs> in just a couple of weeks in Las Vegas at the National Atomic Testing Museum. Really? really? You think? You, think, just, you broke the story. I broke the story. And this story is going viral. You're saying, and you, I think it's getting a ton of attention, right? Yeah, it's it's doing very well. Um, and um, it, it's already generating some controversy, as it should, <laughs> because the, the National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, and this is a great place. Uh, I'm, I'm very friendly with the people who run it. You are, too. Mm-hmm. Um, they... It, it's like I always say to people, let's just follow the dots here, okay? The Smithsonian Institution has a museum in Las Vegas called the National Atomic Testing Museum. Within this museum, they have an exhibit called Area 51, Myth or Reality. Part of this Area 51 exhibit is a special display in which they have various materials under glass, and the title of the display is Authentic Alien Artifact. Like, wow. And now, now, three weeks from now, no, I shouldn't say that. Okay, let me, let me go back. And now, on September 22nd, a one-night-only event at the museum, uh, the museum has invited uh, several heavy-hitter former American military officials who are going to be lecturing, and the name of the lecture is Military UFOs, Secrets Revealed. And and because I've, I've just done this preview story about it, they wanted to give me some details about this. And the very first question I asked the museum and a couple of the participants in the lecture, of course I said, what secrets are going to be revealed? Please, what, what's this about? Now it turns out there may not be any secrets. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, what? Excuse me? You're promoting the fact that secrets are going to be revealed about UFOs, and now you're backing off saying that's maybe not exactly the truth of it. And I could see that, because unfortunately it's a amateurish, although often used marketing ploy that when you're talking about UFOs to talk about secrets revealed. And and very loosely, you know, I mean, uh, some of the stuff these guys worked on used to be secret. Certainly, Nick Pope, and it's not secret. These are declassified things. But, of course, these are declassified much prior to these guys coming to to talk about this. So, um, and, you know, the displays itself. Now, I love that. You know, it's funny because they have this Area 51. Of course, you talked about a display uh, with these UFO parts. But UFOs right. are really 80% of this this uh, exhibit on Area 51. It's all UFOs and aliens and men in black, and I, which is great because they have, you know, Alexander in there and George Knapp's work and some of these people. That's right. But it is kind of also a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, and that's, when I heard the title, that's at first what I thought. I was like, well, there probably won't be much in secrets, but it's probably a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. Um, so, but, And but, what but you're also, saying is don't expect any major secret. Well, what I'm, what I'm saying is what you can expect, and it's already begun, is the back- backlash from readers who have already started saying things like, oh, this is just BS, there's going to be nothing new, we've heard this before. 
uh, we, you know, stop fooling us. You know, I'm, I'm not coming to this. Why should I pay good money to be disappointed? I mean, my my thing is that if some secret is not revealed on September 22nd, the museum is going to suffer some kind of credibility issues. Yeah, I don't think it'll be that big just because people don't care. People are goofballs. Do you think you really believe that? Yeah, people don't care. Yeah, nobody's going to – they're just going to see that this is another – I mean, it's Las Vegas, for God's sakes. It's another marketing <laughs> ploy. Every television show uh, says secret this, secrets revealed in every show, and there's no secrets revealed. I mean, of course, you wrote about chasing UFOs. They're not chasing UFOs. They're, I mean, they're, they're always overstatements, unfortunately, and I okay. don't like it at all. Yeah, but unfortunately, okay. that's, that's modern marketing. Okay, and you know what? You're right. Uh, I, I will totally agree with you on that. But my point of view is, boy, wouldn't it be great if for once somebody doesn't lie? I know. Wouldn't it I be know. great if when they say a secret's going to be revealed, hey, a secret is revealed. Yeah. Why Why can't that happen? I know. I you know. know. That's, what, that's what I hope. Me too. And, and, well, at least people can trust. If you or I say something's a big secret... Yeah. A, this is a big deal, baby. It's going to be a big deal. Yeah. That we're not going to use this for a marketing ploy to just get people excited and then take their their excitement and dash their hopes and and Yeah. So uh, so all I'm doing is is in my in the story that we broke today, I'm basically saying, folks, here's a preview of what's going to happen at the museum. On September 22nd, here's what they're saying is going to happen. Here's the interesting roster of people who will be there. Uh, let's let's kind of all wait and wish and see what's going to happen. I may be there to cover it live and in person uh, because, you know, I want to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens. And you know what? It's, it's always the case when there are these overstatements. Almost always the case. They didn't have to overstate because this group of people they have is really impressive. Of course, they've had John Alexander before. Right. Charles Halt, though, he's a big deal. He doesn't talk everywhere. He was at the Congress last year, but, uh, you yep. know, uh, he it, that's, that's really cool. But William Coleman and Robert Friend, who both worked on the Blue Brook Project, that's those, right. they rarely, rarely ever talk. So you're definitely going to get some insider info on Project Blue Book. Well, we're sure going to find out um, because I'm, I'm going to be doing an interview with Bill Coleman before the lecture and in which he has promised to give me a hint of something that he might want to reveal at the lecture. And I said, well, I sure hope you're going to come up with something big because I want to write about it mm-hmm. and uh, and I'll, I'll be passing it on to the readers. I'll be, I know what his secret's going to be. <laughs> okay, what? He's, what got a, he's got a big crush on Aaron Ryder. On Aaron Ryder. From chasing um, UFOs. Well, he's going to have to stand in line, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, uh, I mean, I still, even though I, uh, I'm, I would still love to go. I mean, just to talk with those guys, and yeah, yeah. and I know, you know, and this is why I was feeling it that way too, because I know these guys, Robert Friend and Coleman, they're very skeptical. I mean, they um, of the whole thing. But uh, like you said, Coleman, and you'll be writing, you'll have a story coming out. He, though, had a very exciting UFO sighting, right? Yes, yes he did. When he was a, um, a bomber pilot uh, in the 1950s, uh, and he was flying, and they had a very close encounter with something strange that 
that they kind of followed around for a while until it was almost a treetop level, and they got very, very close to it before the thing just took off at an amazing speed um, and, and it vanished. Now, he has told this story before. Um, in my interview that I'm going to do with him before the lecture, he knows I'm going to talk about, I'm going to ask him about the story. I, I'm going to try to get him to admit, and I'm, I'm telling you this now ahead of time, I'm going to try and get him to admit that what he saw that day, that he thinks it was not manufactured on this planet. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that he's ever come out and said anything like that. No, I don't. I would be very surprised if he said that. That would be great. But I would guess that he's just going to say, I don't know what it was. It could have been something out of Area 51. And he's probably going to just say, I play it safe. And I don't know what it was. Well, that, that's fine. It, I, I'm prepared for him to to not want to talk about it, but I'm also gonna I'm gonna try and needle him just a little bit to the point before he yeah. hang ups on me. Get him, uh, you know, and and I'm just gonna really try and push it a little bit. Yeah, and and get him to be logical about it. You know, basically, here's what you saw. You know that many other pilots have have reported the same kind of thing going all the way back to the 40s. Um, you obviously have an enlightened opinion about this don't you just want to get this off your chest right yeah that, that's kind of how i'm going to approach it and we'll see what he says to me yeah that's cool that's exciting so w- everything we've talked about so far has been stories that people can already see that that lee's written about recently except for right now you're going to this coleman interview is upcoming so that'll be an upcoming story right you also have an upcoming story on uh this Swedish exposition. Uh, Swedish. What is the word I'm looking for? The yeah, expedition. It's, it's like, yeah, uh, it's like an expedition to go research these ghost rockets. Yeah, um, and it's interesting. Uh, the ghost rockets have been reported in Sweden uh, for for many decades. Uh, it's been around a long time, and uh, just recently. Uh, well, basically, what happened uh, in 19, it was in 1980, uh, husband and wife were driving near this lake in Sweden, and they saw this thing coming out of the sky, and, and they thought it was going to crash into the lake, but instead it made some kind of a controlled turn, and then it, it appeared to land on the lake, and then it sunk under the water, and they said it looked like a, had like a cigar-shaped look to it, and, and on the on the back of it, it had these two, like, pro tuberances, as they refer to them, like, you know, what we would think of as like rocket engines on the space shuttle, okay? Um, but they it never came out of the water again, and that was 1980, and no one has ever really gone back to the place to check it out until now, and so possibly by the time your listeners hear this show, we might have some word about what they may or may not have found there in Sweden, so I'm, I'm putting that story together now. So that's exciting. So that'll yeah. be really cool. And then, I mean, there's nothing too exciting, but there are also some stories on the Baltic Sea UFO and kind of what MSNBC said it was a glacier, or and then some other sites said it was rocks. But, but it sounds like, and this has been my suspicion the whole time, that these treasure hunters are just trying to milk this and market it. And I think they've been using this silly UFO verbiage and all of this other verbiage just to garner excitement about them and to create this media circus around them, which I guess uh, 
in the defense of their their marketing person, it's good to to get more news about them and what they're doing. Well, you know, they they've been the most recent thing that's come up is is a Peter Lindbergh, who's the head of the expedition that's gone out to the Baltic Sea and found this thing. He's been doing a few interviews and he's been very cryptic about things that he's saying about what this mysterious object is on the seafloor that they've been supposedly exploring for the last year. And now he's he's saying that it has these what he's he's quoted as saying that there are these very strange stair formations that look like stairs on one side of it as if it was constructed. And he believes that if that's the case, well it must have been constructed tens of thousands of years before the Ice Age. So he's making these kinds of statements, and and so people are still really saying, people are scratching their heads going, what is with these guys? You know, yeah, like, I don't think you, you can know. trust them because nothing they say comes true, and they keep changing their story. And Yeah. So we'll see. I, I don't like to give more credence or more story time to people than I should if I think that there's going to be no payoff for the readers, you know? Right, right. Right, and which is another, you know what? The theme of this interview today uh, with you, Lee, has been journalistic integrity. And (laughs) I think it's wonderful that you have this journalistic integrity because so much of today's world is a bunch of rhetoric and BS and overhyping and being disingenuous and really just trying to make big deals out of nothing just to grab attention when, uh, and over and over again, we get let down. Well, I appreciate your kind words. And, you know, right back at you, Mutual Admiration Society, <laughs> I feel the same way about you with all the work that you do. I'm I'm always talking to people about you. And for all you listeners out there, if you want to check out Mr. Rojas, on a regular basis, go to Huffington Post and look him up on the Weird News page. He's one of our best bloggers. So you want to read what he's writing. Yeah, you know, it gave me great pride when I I talked to George Knapp once, and he said, you know why I like to have you on uh, my show, is he said, uh, because you never feed me full of a bunch of BS. Of course, he didn't use the acronym like I did. (laughs) <laughs> but because uh, he's like us, he's frustrated. He's a great journalist, and yeah, yeah. he's someone with some journalistic integrity, also. So, uh, thank you very much for that compliment. Thank you very much for being part of the UFO News Show. I know people love UFO news, and I can't think of anyone better to have on. Oh, thanks, Alejandro. All right, any parting words that you want to tell people? Um, yeah, keep an open mind. Uh, don't make stuff up. Uh, try not to to become a debunker. It it doesn't serve you well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, skepticism is fine. We need it. It's healthy. Uh, but please just keep an open mind when when you're trying to form your own opinions and to share them with people. Come at it with an informed opinion. That's all I ask of people. And don't be afraid to say I don't know. Yeah, You don't have yeah. to have an opinion on everything. You can say, like we often do, I don't know what the deal it's, is. It's like, it's like, say, I don't know, and then follow that up with, you know what, I'll go check it out and get back to you. Right. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful week, and I am looking forward to your upcoming stories, as is, I'm sure, everyone else who's listening. Thank you. 
All right, Lee Spiegel, what a good dude. So, uh, of course, you can go to Huffington Post to see his stories. You can go to Weird News, and he's always got one on the front page there. Um, also, if you follow my Twitter or if you go to ufodailynews.com and go to the news page, you'll see links to his stories because I, of course, tweet those, and I also put them on the UFO Think Tank Facebook as soon as those uh, often. Anyway, thank you all so much for joining us once again. A wonderful show. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, listeners. Adios, muchachos. You have a good week.